Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. If you listened to last week's abbreviated episode, you know that we were planning on the approach of Hurricane Michael. And I'm, I just want to give you a little bit of insight into what it's like to have a hurricane come through your property. And at the outset, I want to say we were spared. I feel very, very lucky. It could have been bad. And all I have to do is go 10 miles down the road. And I, oh, I don't even have to go 10 miles. It, it's so random when, when, strong winds come for extended periods of time. It's very random. You know, this tree just happened to be growing there and the wind just happened to be coming from this direction. And it just happened to gust at 95 miles an hour and knock the tree down onto your bedroom where you just got up from a nap. Now that didn't happen to me, but it happened to people. I, I heard this morning, I think the death count is at 29 and I don't know what the missing is. It is sincerely much worse if you go down around Panama City, Mexico Beach. But that thing, that storm um, was, you know, they, they show the cone, the spaghetti, the spaghetti models and all this stuff. And, you know, the closer it gets to landfall, the more accurate those things become and they begin to converge into like one line. Well, that line was pointing right here at Sumter County. And, and, you know, typically when a hurricane comes through, like Irma did last year, it'll hit the coast and pretty rapidly begin to deteriorate. And by the time it would get up to us here at in Sumter County, Georgia, if a hurricane, let's say a Category 3 or 2 landed you know, in the Gulf, by the time it would get here, it would just be labeled tropical storm and it would be a wicked storm knocked down all kind of, you know, I mean, it, it's a, it's not like a thunderstorm that you get 15 minutes of, you know, a blast of all these downbursts and gusts and all that, or a tornado that just zips through in three minutes. I mean, this goes on for hours and hours and hours. Well, Irma did that last year. And, you know, we sat home and of course the lights were out and we had no power for, I think, seven or eight days in Irma. But basically it was just picking up sticks and gathering up the lawn chairs and it wasn't any real significant damage. Because by the time Irma made it from the coast to our area and the path was almost identical once it was over land. Um, you know, it just, it, it was a long, um, you know, period of camping out, but you know, there was no tremendous damage from Irma. Okay. So here comes Michael and I made the little five minute or 10 minute podcast and we were sitting around trying to decide, do we go or do we stay? I mean, it, when you'd look at that, that. They would average all those spaghetti model paths that computer models say it's going to go here. And, you know, it's just straight 
through Americas. And, you know, and they also predict the wind speed, what time winds will arrive and, you know, what are the maximum gusts and all this stuff. And so when it passed through and, and the, the eye of the storm did pass through, it, it came just a little bit north of Albany, went through Leesburg, Smithville, and caught the southeastern corner of, of Sumter County, which is the county I live in. I mean, this was just too close for comfort to me. So we decided to bug out. So, uh, I got to use my bug out bag and everything. And I, we, uh, we piled in the car at about 11 o'clock in the morning, the day it was going to make the morning. It made landfall down in Panama city and it was bad down there. It is bad down there. Uh, you know, I, I think it's bad here, but it is not compared to what some people have are going through and are still going through right now. You know, hurricanes come through and they're all over the news and you got the weathermen standing out there, you know, blowing and, you know, I sometimes think they set up a big fan and a sprinkler and just record that stuff in the studio. I don't know, but, and then it's over and, but it's not over. It's not over for a long time. And I'll, you know, whatever you can do to help those people down there, if you know anybody, don't forget about them. It's going to be a long time. So, you know, just, just to get power back on is going to be a while. There are people whose entire lives are destroyed. I'm lucky because by the time it got up here, it actually was still classified as a uh, category one hurricane when it passed through here. And that's pretty unusual for a storm to still be called a hurricane by the time it gets this far inland, which we're not that far inland, but we're way down in Southwest Georgia. Anyway, it was still called a hurricane. I don't, I don't know if a, you know, it's usually they're downgraded to tropical storm and then you get about eight or 10 hours of just really nasty weather. But this one was still a hurricane when it came through our County, but we bugged out and we, <laughs> Darlene had a, had a, a free room. We went to the Marriott suites up in, up near Atlanta in McDonough. And it was, it was, you know, just a blustery, nasty night. Uh, up there, but we were a hundred miles away from the path of the eye. So we get up in the morning and, you know, they had power up there in Atlanta and we had breakfast and I went over and met buddy Ashmore and his wife and uh, Jackson. And I had breakfast with him at waffle house and my old picking partner up there in Jonesboro shot to breeze with him and then loaded up the car and headed back South to see what, you know, what we're facing. I was just assuming, you know, get the insurance guy on speed dial and, you know, I've got huge trees around this, this place. We've got 14 extremely mature pecan trees. That's basically our yard. And they're probably 80, 90 feet tall, just huge pecan trees. That's, you know, kind of the back and sides of our property. And then in the front, it's, this house was built probably about 1900 and, you know, it was an old, um, well, 
I won't waste a lot of time describing the house and stuff, but it was very typical. Uh, and it's, if you go around in the South and look at old farmhouses, you tend to see a very carefully positioned Oak tree that would provide shade in the summer. And a lot of times a Magnolia tree, and we have both of those, they're gigantic and they were probably, you know, saplings when the house was built, but now they're not. You know, that oak tree is, it would take three people holding hands. I don't even know if three people holding hands could reach around it. It's huge, gigantic laurel oak. And it's seen its better days. And it's, uh, it's uh, got a lot of hollow stuff and dead stuff's falling out of it all the time. But this thing is a monster. It's just huge. And if that thing toppled over on the house... We wouldn't have a house. That's why we went to Atlanta. You just never know. So anyway, we're getting back and we pull in the driveway. We can't, there's no way we're not, there's no way we can come up that driveway. I'm going to post a picture or two on the show notes page for this episode, just so you can see my driveway and you'll know what I have to look forward to. I'm just, I mean, I'm really just beginning to get started cleaning up. But I want to say we did dodge a bullet. No, nothing, no, no damage whatsoever to the house. The yard and the property is a wreck and, um, had a lot of pine trees way in the back that, um, all fell down in line and it was live pine trees, probably 16 inches in diameter, a DBH for you forestry guys big, tall, mature pine trees. And it was the live trees that were coming down the dead ones. You know, if you had a beetle kill or something like that, they don't catch a lot of wind like a parachute and they just stand there. It's the live ones that come down and just uproot. I had about five of those at the, at the back that just knocked out our fence, our fence line for the pasture where the donkeys live. So I had to take quick action and set up some temporary fencing and this kind of stuff. And, and the donkeys are cooped up right now in about a, they got about an acre and they're a little bit hacked off at me and they wonder why they can't go down where they usually go, but we'll gradually get all that stuff straightened out. Um, it's just a real wreck around here. And, and uh, it was funny because the weekend before I mentioned in last week's podcast, just briefly that, I went to a bluegrass festival the weekend before and Jackson and I took off and went camping and, oh, it's so fun to be camping and cooking on the grill. And, you know, it's funny. You, you actually spend money to go camping and you enjoy it. And you think this is just great being out in the, the, uh, out in mother nature and the great outdoors. And, but then when it's forced upon you, because when we arrived here at the house, the power was out and, for us, because we're on a well, that means no water because we have an electric pump. There was still, you know, 20 or so gallons of water in the pressure tank just sitting there. The toilets flushed, you know, three times maybe. And there was a little bit of water coming out of the faucet, but the pressure tank soon, you know, fell to zero. So we captured all that water and, and ran it through the Berkey. And, uh, I'd stockpiled some water. I had a 250 gallon horse tank that I positioned under the edge of the roof of the barn and it was full. So 
when when you're forced to camp, it begins to get old real fast. You get on each other's nerves, and the weather was hot. Once the storm passed through, the sun was out, and it was hot, so you can't run the air conditioning. You got all the doors and windows open, and and during the day, you have plenty of light, and we have a gas stove, so with a match, you know, we were cooking, and we were trying to cook up everything in the fridge before it went bad. Of course, the freezers are slowly thawing, and all last year's garden stuff is just going to be ruined. Um, you know, it's just... you. you it's not as much fun camping when you don't choose to do it. So that went on for four or five days. No power, no water, uh, flushing toilets by carting a five gallon bucket back and forth from the horse tank, uh, running a little generator to uh, charge up cell phone. Uh, my wife never lost cell phone service. She had it the whole time. Uh, but, it got old. Let me tell you, it got old. And eventually the power, we had those, those pine trees that knocked that fence down, took out, um, two, it took out the, I can't really describe it all here to you. If you were standing here, I could point and show you the power poles, but living out here in the country, you're kind of the, the power lines don't follow the roads. They just kind of dot to dot from farm to farm. So when all those trees came down, it just ripped all the wires loose from the transformers and wrecked the, you know, wrecked the transformers, snapped the top off of one of the poles. And so it, it took them a while to get here because, you know, we're not hot priority. You know, they're going to work on the, the neighborhoods and areas that, you know, where the hospital is and where the school is and where the police department is and, and where the majority of people live. And when you're just out in the sticks, you know, you're just going to sit around and wait. So we did a lot of camping, um, you know, lighting up the old, uh, kerosene lanterns and cooking on Sterno, you know, we had a lot of hot dogs, had some hot dogs in the freezer. So anyway, it's been a very challenging week, but kind of fun, you know, it, it, as they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So but the insurance guy finally was here yesterday and we're, we're back up and running. We got power and water and internet and all that kind of stuff. Insurance guy was out here and essentially because, you know, he, he crawled around the roof and stuff, but he, you know, they really couldn't find any damage to the house. So, that, you know, <laughs> they're basically not going to pay for all these down pine trees. I've, I'm, I'm going to become a logger for the next couple of months. Basically it, I can't even, I don't even know how long it's going to take me to get the driveway open. I ended up going out there into the pasture where I've got a farm gate and I just blocked the donkeys out of their favorite grazing area and cut the fence and just rolled up the wire to make us a secondary driveway access. So we're just driving across the pasture. That's how we're getting in and out. Anyway, you've probably heard enough of my troubles here, but I would just say that uh, throughout the entire thing, the website stayed up because I, I checked it from the uh, hotel lobby up there in McDonough while we were dodging the storm and bugging out. Everything continued to work. Uh, so I guess all I'm saying is if you ever felt like becoming a Grass Talk Radio supporter or um, purchasing any of my instructional materials over on BradleyLair.com, uh, now would 
be an excellent time. That's all I'm going to say. And because I've got a whole lot of other things I really need to be doing besides thinking about bluegrass. Although, uh, let me let me say this. Bluegrass doesn't stop when the storm stops. I spent a lot of time. There was nothing to do, basically. Power's out. The gas stations were all shut down. You couldn't buy gas. You know, the grocery stores were not open. They didn't have power. I mean, so it's just, you know, stay home. And uh, I just kept practicing that fiddle. And I also did some work on an old mandola that I have. I've got an old Gibson mandola from, like, it's, I think it's a 1909 got the handheld tuners on it and this thing uh badly needed a new fretboard and i spent some time making the new fretboard and i've got the i've got it fretted and the uh, inlay dots in it and i'm just about ready to glue it down i need to get some binding so i'm gonna i'm restoring that old mandola that always played out of tune i don't know I don't know if it was Gibson or somebody later replaced the fretboard, but the it never played in tune. And I got to measuring on it, and I realized that, you know, as you move up the fretboard, the frets get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer together. But I really carefully looked at it one time, and it, they're getting smaller, smaller, smaller. And then there was a wide one. I'm like, what is that doing there? And when I pulled the frets, it looked like these fret slots had been cut with a chainsaw. And anyway, that board came off and I'm making a new board. So I did spend a little bit of time bluegrassing, you might say, but things are turning back to normal. I, I did promise in the last episode that I would have a full, full blown episode, but frankly, I got too much stuff to do. So what I'm going to do to finish out this episode, and it's actually going to be kind of a long one is back a few months ago. I was getting kind of annoyed that, and it's like, why, you know, bluegrass, what am I doing, doing bluegrass stuff? I should do something of more general interest, you know, <laughs> the quickest way to, uh, you know, be broke all the time is to try to make some sort of business out of bluegrass. And I thought maybe I need to, I got this idea to make another podcast that was not bluegrass and just tell all these crazy stories and stuff. So I, back a couple of months ago, I, I did, I just record, sat down and started recording crazy, I don't know, just oddball stories from my childhood and stuff like that. And I, I edited together, I don't know, I think I've got four episodes, haven't done anything more with it yet. So I thought, well, just to fill up time for this episode, I'm going to treat you to what may become a future podcast that will have nothing to do with bluegrass whatsoever. I haven't even come up with a title for it. So if you have any, if you, after you listen to this, if you have any suggestions, what would be a good name for this podcast, let me know, but I'm just going to maybe start that thing on the side and just, just recount some of the weirdness that I've seen and observed and participated in, in my life. Um, Anyway, so what I'm going to do is, this is it for the so-called bluegrass content for this episode, and what you're about to hear is really just a test episode from this possible podcast series that I might do, and if you like it, tell me. Let me know. Let me know if you like this 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 sort of thing, and I, I might just set up a whole new podcast and do some of this stuff. Anyway, so here we go. This one is called... Um, my life as a stripper. 
And just for the record, the music that I'm that I'm using for the intro and outro of this possible future podcast is um, the Morrow Senior High School Band, my first record album that I ever appeared on. And I am tooting the French horn along with the Morrow High School Band. And I don't have it in front of me, so I can't remember the name of the march. But it's uh, it's where I learned to play offbeats. When you hear that, that's me. Me and three other pipple-faced French horn players playing in the Morrow High School Band. I just thought it was appropriate for the uh, time period of the content. Anyway, enjoy um, this little trip down memory lane. I know you may find this hard to believe, but I once was employed as a stripper. I had my own gloves and everything, worked in these, in these dark rooms in the red light district. Now, before your imagination gets the wrong idea, let me explain. In an earlier episode, I discussed life in the press room, working part-time in the newspaper business. And I briefly mentioned that um, one of the one of the jobs around the press room was a job called the stripper. And my brother held that position when I first started working at the paper. But since he had, you know, big dreams and a Volkswagen bug, he eventually moved on to bigger and better things. He was working in the paint and hardware department at Sears and Roebuck at the new mall that had just been built. So he had he had moved on to bigger and better things, so they needed somebody to be a stripper. So since I had been there a little while and I I knew a little about it, I became the stripper on Tuesday night. And here's what a stripper does in the newspaper world. The newspaper is all in those days. There was no such thing as digital anything. Everything was cut and paste. And there would be the composition room. And there would be the typesetter back there working. And the typesetter would just be entering text, typing away, typing away, typing away. And then this conglomeration of machinery would produce strips of type in columns. And so if they had this article, they would type all that stuff in and hit the button and this machine would expose a piece of photofilm with all the little letters that would be the the kind that I was familiar with was called a quadratech and it had this wheel inside with these little microscopic negatives of all the letters in a particular font and this machine would hold four of these on these little like plexiglass discs and so you could insert into the little wheel four of these quarters and each one, if you held a magnifying glass up to it and looked at it really closely, there's the whole lowercase alphabet the whole uppercase alphabet, all the numbers and symbols, little tiny, tiny, tiny negatives 
for the font. And you, you could put four of these at a time into the machine. This is what the typesetter ran, was this machine. And that wheel would spin inside the machine. And there were four fonts available because you, you put in the four little quadrant discs. So basically you had the body copy, italics, bold, and then maybe one that was a little different. So the typesetter sits there all day long, typing in articles you know, from the, the copy provided them typing in and it would all be marked up by the, by the editor or the, somebody would mark up, you know, 12 point, um, Roman or 10 point Roman italics, you know, all this stuff would be scribbled on the copy. So as the typesetter would enter it in, once it was all stored in the machine, they would hit output and this machine would start grinding away and that wheel would be spinning and a little strobe light inside there would flash and there were lenses and prisms and a roll of photographic paper inside this machine and each letter one by one would be exposed onto the film and as the wheel spun around if you needed a, a lowercase b it would flash and a B would be exposed onto the film and the entire contents, every word you read in a newspaper was exposed letter by letter onto a roll of film like that. And this film would be stored on a, on a light proof cassette box. It was all being fed into this light proof box. And when the typesetter had finished, you know, this article about the city council meeting and then this, uh, you know, football story. And then this, whatever, whatever they had on their desk, they would enter all this stuff in exposing and exposing and exposing. And eventually as the cartridge got full, they would stop and advance the film six or eight inches. And then there was a little cutter on it and they could cut that film and take that cartridge and, carted over to the dark room and then inside the dark room, this is where you get into the red light district. The only light inside the dark room was a red light bulb because red light would not expose the film. So you worked in this world of where everything was red. So the film would come in there. If you worked in the dark room, you would, you would process negatives of the entire newspaper and you would also process this film for the typesetter. So there was a machine and you, you put the, put the cartridge of all this exposed text column copy into this little machine and pull that film out and feed it into this machine. And it would go slowly pull the film out and very slowly that film would go down into a tank of developer and the tank was sized such and the, the speed of the machine was set. So there was the proper amount of time, perhaps it was a minute and a half or three minutes that this film went down into this tank through these rollers and then came back up and emerged, developed. And then it would, these little guides would move that film over into tank two and it would go down into the rinse tank and it would be just water flushed and that film would make a U-turn at the bottom and slowly come up and out then it would go into the fixer tank and it would go down into there and this this long stream of photographic paper 
black and white photographic print paper. Go down through the fixer, which would stop all the chemical processes of what was happening in the developer. Because if you just ran it through the developer and didn't rinse it off and you left it laying around a few hours, it would gradually turn gray and grayer and grayer and eventually just completely turn black. You had to get that developer off. So it was rinsed and then it was run through the what they call the stop bath or the fixer. And that would just kill the developer process. It would come out of the fixer, and then it would go into one more rinse tank. And it, this, this film's just progressing through there. And while you're back in the darkroom doing this, the typesetter is busy typing new articles and entering more stuff and preparing a, another cartridge of, of typesetting. So eventually this wet piece of film would come out. Now it's fully developed, and it can be exposed to light. At this point, it's light it's it's not sensitive to light anymore. All the light sensitive part of the film has been exposed and turned into dark silver crystals. Uh, I think it's silver iodide crystals that forms the black that you see on the film and everything else is washed away and goes into the chemistry of the developer and the fixer. So this strip of wet film comes out and there's the article about, uh, you know, the Morrow Mustangs beat the, uh, you know, the Jonesboro, whatever, 16, no, that didn't happen very often. It was usually the other way around. But all these articles and stories and things would come out on this long strip of film, paper. So you'd hang them up by a clothespin inside. If you're working in the darkroom, you'd hang these up by clothespins, let them dry, and then return them to the to the paste-up room, the composition room, where there were people in there working, and they had these big angled tables with a big sheet looked like a poster board, and on that poster board would be all these little faint blue lines so they could line everything just right to position the columns and so forth. And there, they would take that piece of film and look through it and try to find the article they were working on, get their scissors and cut that article out, and then they had a machine called a waxer, and it was just melted beeswax. And there was a tank of melted beeswax and, and a little roller with all these discs on it. And you would take that film paper and flip it upside down, stick it in there and hit the button. And it would roll through that machine real slow and just apply these lines, uh, fine little lines of melted beeswax onto the back of that paper. Now it was you could stick it down and it would stay put. But you could also just pluck it right off and stick it down again and rub it down. So kind of put a, an adhesive on the back that was movable. So these bits of all this type would come out, and the composition people were there setting up. Maybe maybe you were responsible for page one, two, three, and four. And that's what you work on. And all this type would appear, and also the photographs would appear, and those would come out of the darkroom. And I won't go into the process of how you shoot halftones, but that was done by the darkroom guy. And also the headlines. And the headlines was a, a separate machine that had a whole bunch of different fonts, and they were much larger. And you basically, letter by letter, hit a button and exposed, you know, a capital B. And then you'd slide this strip of film. It looked like a long strip of 35-millimeter film down to, I need a... 
I need an R. He'd slide it over there and push the button and it would flash and put an R on there. And then he would move over. I need an A. Flash it. And it was just a different machine doing the same basic process, exposing these letters. They would make headlines. So that would all be processed in the dark room too and brought out to the composition room. So throughout the day, the composition people are pasting up articles and sometimes, and of course the editor would be looking at this stuff too. And sometimes, you know, an article, you had four, four column inches, you had four inches in one column and this article had to fit. Well, the article was like five inches long and literally the editor would go, eh, snip it here and snip it here. Just put that together. And those couple of sentences just went on the floor literally on the cutting room floor. This is how editors edited. And so sometimes the stories didn't make great sense. Uh, you know, the reporter, he would write this great story and he would have so many words he's supposed to write. But if he did a little over and they were a little short of space, they might take the knife to it. Of course, they always had exacto knives and razor blades and stuff like that. They were just, you literally edited type by slicing it and throwing it away and pushing it together. And if it was a multi-column story, you know, they would move, move over and have, you know, five inches here and five inches here. And then it, you'd have that little line. They would stick on there that says continued on page seven. And they might have a whole bunch of those sticking over on the side, you know, that they used yesterday and they would stick that on there. And then they would go over to seven and find they need two inches and they would find two inches because the ads were already on there. Because if somebody was paying for space, they those spaces, you weren't going to monkey with that. If somebody paid for a quarter page, they got a quarter page. So you, you couldn't make an ad smaller just to insert a little bit more about Johnny playing football, you know. So stuff got brutally cut and gradually those pages were completed. And I'm getting now to what the stripper then does when that full page is fully pasted up and proofread that's been done before it gets back to the dark room. That entire page would be delivered to the dark room and handed off. And at that point composition was done. They had done their job. If, if they had that person had four pages or eight pages to do when they were done and they handed the last one off, they would go home or work on tomorrow's stuff, start laying out the ads for tomorrow. And those, uh, those master sheets that each page was laid out on were recycled. So when that, if you had the page one, that may have been used a hundred times. Because that big header and, the, you know, basically a lot of stuff stayed the same. And maybe an ad was running for a week. So tomorrow those would all go back and be laid out throughout the composition room in page order. And they would pull off the stuff that was going in the trash that, that was going to be changed. And the ads that remained would stay there. And maybe an ad would stop running. They might peel it off and save it and put it in the files in case they ran that ad again. But things like grocery store ads that just changed all the time, they just pulled them off and threw them away. So this large sheet would move into the darkroom, and it was at full size, 100% size, all this type, photographs. And if you needed a line in those days, you used line tape. 
and they would have these dispensers like scotch tape dispensers with little eighth of an inch wide tape and there would be a black line printed on it and you would pull off a few inches of that and you would stretch it out between your thumbs and stick it down then take your exacto knife and cut the ends off and peel them off and there's your line so you used line tape and there were even these these fancy corners and uh, rounded corners and all this stuff you'd have a, a roll on there that had nothing but you know like two point lines 90 degree rounded corner and you could pull off four of those and you would piece those together you would overlap them and slice between them and pull them apart and you could always judge people that were great paste-up people by how accurate the corners were on their boxes and lines. A lot of times they put boxes around photographs and things like that, or in setting up ads. It was really a, a craft, very arts and craftsy to do paste-up in those days. That sheet would be moved to the darkroom, and a humongous giant camera was in there with film the size of the full page of the newspaper. Huge sheets of film. And the, the paste-up board would be placed under the glass and the camera focused. And then there were these big flash burning bulbs that would be turned on. And this thing might be exposed for, you know, five seconds. And you'd hit the button and you would expose the negative. So the film of the negative was then processed in trays, usually big trays of developer. You take that film out, that sheet of film and develop it. And now it was a, a negative. Everything that was white is now black and everything that was black is now white. And then it would get rinsed and put in the fixer and then hung up on a clothespin to dry. So in the darkroom, the darkroom guy was shooting negatives of every page of that newspaper. Then when the negatives were dry, this is what the, what the stripper would do. The stripper would take that negative, and there were little crosshatch marks and little reference marks, alignment marks that were written in black on the base sheet that would appear as clear or white marks on the negative. And so those were your alignment marks. You knew where the, the margins were and things like that. So those finished dry negatives would be taken by the stripper into another room, and he had a big light table. And it was a uh, just a, a big table, like a kitchen table, with a piece of glass over it and maybe some plastic film or frosted glass underneath it and lights in there so that this whole table lit up. And when you laid that negative down on there, it lit up and you could read it. Of course, everything is reversed. You got white type on black. And what the stripper would do, the first thing you did was you look for little, little specks and you had a little, a little jar of this black opaquing paint material and a little paintbrush. And if you worked on the dull side of the film, you would look for little specks. Like if there was a speck of dust on the glass or a little, a little speck of dust on the paste-up sheet, it would show up as a, as a bright white speck. So you just look the whole thing over, just taking your little paintbrush and 
knocking out those little specks, looking for all the little specks, because those would show up as little black dots on the finished print when it went to press. So you're cleaning it up a little bit, opaquing. Then you would take this big sheet of opaque. It was kind of this school bus yellow orange type of paper. And it had this grid marked on it. And you would align the negative for that page on there. And you would tape it down with this red uh, cellophane tape, like scotch tape, but it was red. And red and orange come out as black when you shoot in a dark room in black and white photography. So you tape down these negatives and get them lined up just perfect. Then you'd go back to the light table and with your, with your exacto knife, you would cut out a big window, just cut the paper away and throw that section away so that you now had the negative mounted to this other sheet, which was larger than the negative. And that other sheet was the exact size of the printing plate. So you're trying to block out light from everything on that printing plate except what you wanted to be ink. So that was stripping. You would you would mount this negative in a much larger sheet that matched the size of the of the printing plate itself. So now you're ready to burn the plate. So you take that negative that's been stripped and you put it on a photosensitive aluminum sheet which had rows of little holes at the at the ends where the press would engage and clamp and hold that that aluminum just a big sheet of aluminum and it was photosensitive you put the negative over the top of it and you put it in the plate burner and the plate burner had a glass a piece of glass that came down and a vacuum a rubber base plate and you'd hit the button for the vacuum and it would suck all the air out of it and, and pull that plate and negative just in intimate contact. And then you would hit the exposure button and it was exposed with UV light. So this UV bulb would come on and it might run. I don't remember the time now, probably 15 seconds or something like that exposed with this ultra bright light. And you could actually burn these plates in just kind of a dim room. They weren't that sensitive to just normal daylight. It's just kind of a dark corner of the dark room. And when that exposure was done, you would shut off the vacuum and open up the glass frame, pull off the negative with its masking sheet, set it aside. And you could see a faint image, kind of a light greenish color on the plate. Then you took that over to the big sink and you got the developer in a, in a bottle and you squirted it on there and you got, had your rubber gloves on and you took this cotton pad and you, you rubbed the developer all over that plate back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you would see that image get darker and darker and darker and it would turn this kind of bluish green color. And then you went to the next sink and you rinsed it off. You rinsed it off and then you hung it up to dry. Now that plate was now ready to go on the press. That's what the pressman was waiting for. So that's what the stripper did or the darkroom guy. And sometimes that would be the same person. You might be back there shooting half tones, which were photos. You might be making some headline type. You might be developing type for the typesetter, or you might be stripping negatives and burning plates for the press. So that's what I got to do when I was 15. When I was 15, 16 years old, 
That's what I did on Tuesday nights in Jonesboro, Georgia for a buck 60 an hour. We had a lot of fun in there. I can remember, you know, by the time I'd be working, I'd be the only one working back there. All the composition people, they'd gone home at five o'clock and we were just burning plates for that weekly paper. So that it was just a matter of going in there, shooting negatives, stripping the negatives and burning the plates. So it'd be some time to kill while you're waiting on plates to dry and stuff. And I would go up in the composition room and there would be tomorrow's paper about 80% laid out. You know, they would already have the comics in there. I could read tomorrow's comics, you know, the day before. I could go back there and read Peanuts and just, just look at what was going to be in the paper the next day. And also they had a little room there where the wire service machines were. And there was a, there was a machine that ran all the time in there probably connected by a phone line or a dedicated phone line or something. And I don't remember if it was Associated Press or UPI, but there was a machine in there, a teletype, and it basically just sat there waiting for a signal. And if a story started to come across the wire, it would start printing out. And it would just print. You know, here's a story about Richard Nixon. You know, it's like, and it would just run for 10 minutes and then it would pause and it just sit there a little bit. And then here would come this story about a, you know, a, a typhoon in Japan. And so you could just kill time and just sit on a stool and watch this machine. Watch the news coming across the wire. And beside it, they had another machine that got photos, photographs over the wire. They subscribed to a wire service for photos too. And this was sort of like a primitive fax machine. It was a, had a roll of paper that was, you know, like heat sensitive or something. It had this moving head that zing back and forth, zing, 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 as, it, as this paper advanced really, really, really slowly. And there was like a tone. You could hear it. I think they were doing it with audio so that like the higher the pitch, the darker the print and the lower the pitch, the lighter the line. And it just drew lines and they were either thick or thin based upon the voltage of this little sparking gizmo that would zing back and forth. And it produced this kind of a dark purple color. It wasn't really blue, wasn't really black. It was just kind of a, a purplish, kind of a burnt purple look. And this thing would just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and barely moving. And so you had a little time to kill. You could just sit there and watch. And this picture would just slowly come across, you know, and it would be Kissinger in China shaking hands with somebody or, or something. It just every photograph that came across the wire came on that little machine. And then the, in the morning, you know, they'd come in in the morning and there'd just be mountains of this paper just all piled up all over the floor. Cause it was one long continuous roll coming off the wire and off the, the photo machine. And this stuff would be gathered up and rolled up and taken to the editor. And he'd look through it and cut stuff apart and say, all right, well, we'll use this, this one. Nah. And, uh, all that stuff would be then the, the articles would be given to the typesetter and they'd have to retype it all. And the photos would be sent to the dark room and the, uh, the dark room guy would turn those god-awful purple things into what appeared to be pretty decent photographs, half-tone photographs for the for tomorrow's paper. 
It's just fascinating to watch how this stuff all worked in, in those days. It has certainly changed a lot. Now, you know, the end product is similar, at least if you buy a printed newspaper today. But, you know, the, the, the digital world has crept in and made a lot of these things where, you know, I know a guy that works at a newspaper here in town. I guarantee you, he, he doesn't know what a waxer is. He's never accidentally dropped an X-Acto knife and had it poke him in the top of the foot. You know, they used to have these little rubber, triangular rubber, little sleeves that we'd slide onto your X-Acto knife so they wouldn't roll off that slanted paste-up table. Because if you ever rolled one off, it was like a spear. And I remember one time, you know, one jabbing me right in the top of my shoe. Just pink, like a spear. <laughs> the days of paste up. I also remember pulling a few stunts. I, I, I can remember just in my, you know, as a, sometimes you like to do things just to see if you can get away with it, you know. And I can remember going in there one day. Nobody's back there in composition. And I'm just looking at tomorrow's paper and there's this big real estate ad. And the top of the real estate ad had the photographs of all their agents. You know, here's the the president and here's this agent, agent of the month. And all these little photos, like 12 or 16 photographs of all their agents at whatever it was, Tri-City Realty, you know. And then photographs of these houses and the little features and all this stuff. And, you know, you make your dreams come true. Call, you know, whatever the phone number was. And I remember looking at those. And I was, I was looking at them. And I just, I don't know what possessed me to do this. But I just, where those agents were, I just, all that stuff was just waxed and stuck down. I just reached up and pulled off this guy's picture. And the lady next to him peeled hers off and I just switched them. I stuck them back down. So Bill is now Mary and Mary is now Bill. I stuck them down. Didn't say a word. Next day, get out of school. I'm not working that day because I only work Tuesday nights, but I'm looking for Wednesday's paper. I go straight to the newspaper rack, buy me Wednesday's paper, tear through it, trying to find that, that real estate ad. There it is. Bill and Mary are switched. You know, that ran for about three weeks. They, they didn't, nobody ever noticed it. And I finally went back in there and switched them back and, and corrected it. And it, it kept on going. Nobody ever even noticed it. It's funny. I don't know what you call that when you, you know, when you try to make your little mark on the world by doing little, some little thing just to, you know, I don't know what, what the term for that is, but it gives you some strange feeling of accomplishment to have done this little this little insignificant thing which would just be chalked up as somebody made a mistake no big deal yeah i don't know what you call it but it's amazingly amusing when you when you do something like that as long as you don't make a career and a life out of it i I don't think there's a whole lot of harm in it but makes you wonder what all sorts of things like that go on in the world you know (laughs) anyway so that's what it was like to work as a stripper (laughs) 